You know, I, I wanted to start off by uh, sharing a, a story between my brother and I. Fortunately, he's not here to uh, defend himself or our actions uh, when we were young. Uh, and it's actually something that we still kind of do. I think that we're cognizant uh, of this story when we're eating around one another, the way this story goes. Um, when Raymond and I were young, they're seven years apart, so it's actually more my shame <laughs> that I do this. Uh, but when we were young, uh, my brother uh, and I uh, would kind of watch each other eat, where we're sitting at the table, uh, and if we were having an especially good meal or a good dish, we would kind of slow down, and we would try and wait each other out so that the other brother would finish their food first. So picture a dessert, and we both have an ice cream sundae, and we're kind of watching to make sure that the other brother finishes first. Because why? Because if the other brother finishes first, then all of a sudden the brother who still has ice cream left is able to just sort of embellish and really enjoy the ice cream that's left over. So I'd wait for Raymond to be done, and then all of a sudden I'd be like, mm, man, this ice cream is so good. Don't you wish you still had some? You know, we used to do that when we were young, and fact is, I think Raymond and I still kind of do this. I, we don't taunt each other like that, but I know I'm still kind of cognizant. If we're each having something good to eat, we're watching each other uh, because we, we want to kind of hold back and we want to be able to tease each other uh, about this. I, is this. Is this not a common experience? Weird. That is a weird thing? Okay. Just Raymond and I. We, well, we, and I think we still do it. Uh, oh, yes, that's right. Uh, at New Year's Eve, when, uh, or New Year's Day, uh, to tradition in my family, we actually eat lobster on uh, New Year's Day. And so Raymond and I still eyeball each other to see how much lobster each other has so that we can kind of taunt one another with how much lobster is uh, left over. And it's funny, it's just there's, even though it might not be this universal thing, which I think you're lying about, it's tr it is something that everybody does a little bit in some way. There's this kind of selfishness sort of inbred into humans. It's something that we do. We either tease each other or there's always selfishness. Watching my kids grow up and seeing the way that they fight over things, uh, they still do that now. And especially, especially when it's like not something that Lucy is playing with, Carter will all of a sudden want it, right? Or if uh, Carter's playing with something, all of a sudden Lucy wants it. Um, and especially with even younger ones, we know that that's definitely a part of their nature. Uh, they just like to watch what other kids are doing and see what they're playing with, and they want it for themselves. Teaching kids to share is probably one of the trickiest things for a parent to teach. We don't want our kids to be selfish. Nobody wants that. I don't think that any of us intentionally do selfish things in front of kids because we don't want them to create selfish patterns. But the thing is about little kids, when they're little kids, like infant to toddler and growing up, the thing is when they're little, everything's about them, right? We're always watching what they do. We unintentionally foster a self-centered attitude in them because we're always taking care of them, because we're always watching them. We're constantly celebrating their victories. We're constantly fixing the things that upset them. It kind of makes sense, right, that our kids would grow up and kind of think, the universe kind of does revolve around me because that's how it is to parent a kid. So we shouldn't really be surprised 
when there is a collision, when our kids learn that they aren't the center of the universe. We teach them to share, we teach them uh, to take care of others, but from their upbringing, it's all about them. And so there's this real strong inbred selfishness that we just can't help when it comes to these little ones. And frankly, as a Christian, as someone who subscribes to a biblical worldview, it's complicated because us Bible-believing Christians, we also have the, the knowledge that this is a broken state of humanity, that being human means to err, right? Being human means I take care of myself or I am selfish. Humans are not always altruistic. We don't always make the right selfless decisions. And whether, again, that's inbred, whether it's part of the human definition or if it's the casualty of a broken environment that we belong in, there is not a human who has not struggled with self-preservation or selfishness or comparison even. This selfishness, it doesn't end in childhood. We don't exactly grow up out of it completely. It might become less visible. I'll give you that, I'll grant you that. The selfishness inside us, it might grow less visible. I don't point at another kid, oh, I want that, I want that for myself. I might kind of tuck it down inside of myself and be kind of jealous or compare or look at the things that they have that I don't have. Even though it becomes less visible, there's sometimes this, I don't know, comparison or this selfishness that runs deep in our veins, that's kind of in our inner psyche, causing problems, and let me, you don't have to raise your hand, but see if this is something you've had to struggle with. It runs deep and creates problems for us each concerning pride, concerning jealousy, concerning our self-image, concerning our self-esteem, how we view ourselves. We have problems, inappropriate thoughts of what we think we deserve and judging others on what they deserve. Does that kind of ring for anybody? Is that kind of an existing thing? Are we all still human in here? We've heard it a million times now, for example, that social media is kind of a putting gas on this problem. The problem exists already, but this era of, of, of comparison through social media has exacerbated this already existing human problem. A spirit of comparison that exists already is blown out. When we look at the immaculately manicured feeds and stories that people have on Instagram or on Facebook or other social medias, right? Look how good looking people's stories look. I, I have a friend, for example, uh, from college and she just has the most beautiful family and it looks like they're constantly out of a fashion magazine. Like her kids are always like almost matching and they have a, always the same muted color scheme and between her furniture and her home. And she's a stay-at-home mom, you know, and so she has the time to do this and spend time with her family. But these pictures look amazing. It looks like I'm flipping through a magazine because they're shot so well and the kids are so good looking. And I, a father, instantly go, man, I, I wonder what the dad does, right? Tell me this is in a line of thinking. I wonder what the dad does that he can afford such a pretty, a picturesque life, literally picturesque, because it's in a picture on my feed. 
What can he, what man, what does he do? Is he in construction? Is he in real estate? What, I wonder what he does. And boom, right? Just seeing a picture that looks so great, all of a sudden my mind jumps to comparison. All of a sudden I'm thinking, man, he must make a lot of money that his wife gets to just really perfectly put these, craft these things together. Just two degrees and all of a sudden I'm in a spirit of comparison. I'm thinking, man, I should have jumped in in construction. Or, oh man, his career must make more money than a pastor does. Well, actually, I already knew that. But I look at it and comparison comes so quickly. And I want to tell you the truth. I don't want that. I, I don't want to be comparing. I don't want my life to be looking at what someone else has and saying, man, not being happy with what I have in front of me. I don't want this. No one... No one likes the feeling of being left behind or that everybody else's life looks cooler or better or more manicured or more put together or that that person's really got it going on. Nobody wants that. Being free of comparison, being free of trying to look good and being free of, being free of looking at what we have and what others have is freeing. Being free of what others have, looking at what they have, looking how good their life is, and not being beholden to that. Instead, being free of that, looking instead at God's blessing, look at the things that are in your life. That is a freeing quality. I don't think anyone here wants to feel stuck. Like, what they have in their life is not great. And I think we each want this. And we're gonna see this kind of unfold and we're gonna see kind of this formula unfold for us in Acts chapter five, this act of comparison, this pride, this jealousy. Now, if you've been with us for the last number of weeks, we've been talking about the book of Acts, which is a story of the early church coming to fruition. And we've covered mostly about how the Holy Spirit has been working through Jesus, his apostles and followers. We've seen Peter and other church leaders performing miracles and preaching and adding to their number. We've seen how the early church works, how they depend on one another, how they take care of one another. Last week, we saw outside forces of the church, the Jewish leaders, trying to oppose and put down this church movement. This week, unfortunately, and this is that human part, this week, we're finally gonna see the first signs of internal problems. Problems springing up from within the church. But before we get there, I want to read through Acts chapter 4, verse 32 through 47. So this is still Acts chapter 4 uh, from last week, but there's this description of how awesome their fellowship is and how awesome and united and how connected they are. And I want that's kind of the baseline of what the church is supposed to be and what it's supposed to look like. And so we're going to kind of put this in our memory and compare it to the problems that are to come forward. So Acts chapter four, verse 42 uh, through 47. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. 
Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which meant son of encouragement, he sold a field that he owned, and he brought the money and put it to the apostles' feet. Everything was shared when things were going great. Everything was shared, and no one was of need. Time to time, people, they'd sell their things if there was need, but it would come up freely. And I really love how in this description of early church, in this fellowship, I like that they knew when each other had need. See, there wasn't some sort of, we didn't, we didn't see some sort of program where on a consistent basis, all right, Jaron, you're gonna sell a plot of land, and then next month you have to sell a plot of land, and then you're gonna sell a plot of land. No, it really seemed like from time to time, in this unorganized fashion, to me screams that they were so tight-knit that they knew what each other's needs were. They weren't so proud that they didn't share the needs, that they didn't share their needs with one another. That's, a, that's kind of a problem of the modern-day church, where in that picturesque Facebook Instagram-looking life, I, I, I don't want to ask for help. I don't want someone to think that I'm down on my luck. You know, we want to kind of hide that away from people. And although that's actually an entire sermon series on its own, I think it's really important quality that we take note. They knew when each other had need. And I think that that's something that we really need to emulate in church ourselves. But I don't want to get stuck there. I just want to talk about how awesome it was that they knew each other's needs. They were in such unity, they could see each other's needs. And I think that there's this formula that we can learn in this little section here. It's this, knowledge and gracious compassion, it equaled no needy persons among them. Again, for time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money and the sales and brought them to the apostles' feet to distribute as needed. Knowledge and gracious compassion, it means that there are no needy persons among them. I don't, when I'm driving out of Target and I see someone who's on the road uh, with their two kiddos just kind of begging because they can't find the job or there's some story, you know, I, I try to give if I have some spare change. And I give you a God bless you and I say a quick prayer in my mind as I drive away. But if I saw Jaren, right? If I saw Jaren at the end of the target there, down on his luck, maybe he had an injury that keeps him from working, you think I'm dropping him five bucks? God bless you, man, I'll see you at church. <laughs> do you think that's how that would work? Or do you think, I'd be like, what are you doing? Get in, what are you doing here? And we would figure it out, we would work together. We would make sure that Jaren, his family, that they are taken care of because that's what the knowledge part is. I know Jaron. I know this, his story, and he is a friend of mine, and so there is a unity between us in fellowship. I'm not gonna just drive past him, and because of a gracious compassion taught into me by Jesus Christ, I'm not gonna say, oh, Jeremy, what are you doing there, and then tease him and then drive off. Knowledge on top of the gracious compassion put into us and modeled to us by Jesus Christ means that there are gonna be no needy persons among them. In this congregation, there better not be any needy people. You should be sharing your needs with one another, sure, but we should also be looking out for one another, making sure that everybody is taken care of, and if there is need, we problem solve this thing. 
We allow our gracious compassion for one another to overcome us so that there is no needy people. This is a definition line of what church is supposed to be. There's not supposed to be needy people around here. And whether that be the fault of a person who doesn't share their issues or the fault of us who are not looking for each other's issues, either way, there better not be needy people around here. Beautiful, right? Doesn't that sound awesome to just have a group of people who are so dedicated to one another, who are dedicated to Jesus Christ, that there's nothing needy anymore? I mean, how much, how relieving would that be just to know, I mean, I've got no worries anymore because these people have got my back. I don't have to worry about being out in front of Target because I know if I was down on my butt, Jaron would drive past me, he would pick me up, and he would take care of me. I know that. Beautiful. That's how it's supposed to be. Unfortunately, really, really unfortunately, in this equation, there's humans involved. There are people involved. Broken, selfish, self-preserving, look-at-me people involved. And that throws a wrench in the system. We're going to move ahead into Acts chapter 5. I'm going to break it down here a little bit for you. But there's a couple in the church, this small, this young, growing, budding church. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife, Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. They're kind of copying Barnabas. They saw that what all these people are doing. And they're like, man, he looks so cool doing that. We should probably do the same thing. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet, because that's what they were doing. They were taking money from the sales of their homes and lots, and they were putting it at the apostles' feet. So they put money at apostles' feet. Verse 3 here. Then Peter said, Ananias, and this is really cool. Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, is able to see through Ananias here. Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money that you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? But what made you think of doing such a thing? Again, keeping some of the money for himself and telling him that all the money that he had given and put at Peter's feet was every, everything that the, the lot was worth. You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. It's a kind of crazy story fell down and died, and a great fear seized all who heard what had happened. So that's Ananias, the husband. And he did this with full knowledge, or he did this with his wife's full knowledge. And so a few hours later, Sapphira is also walking around, and Peter kind of tests her to see if she knew about this or if she was cool with what happened. So if you jump ahead to, I think, verse 7, or I skipped the verse after Ananias had died, then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. And then Sapphira is walking around just a little bit later. Peter said to her, after she said that, yep, we gave you all the money, lying to Peter. Peter said to her, how would you, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out 
and buried beside her husband. Here, this story is an opposite and bad example in Ananias and Sapphira. They did the opposite of what Barnabas had done just before them. They did sell something, but then they lied about the amounts. They kept something for themselves and pretended to look just as good as Barnabas. This is a rather infamous Christian story. And I think it's an important one because if you've ever heard criticism of a difference between an Old Testament God and a New Testament God, here it is. You see, people falling over debt seems so extreme, doesn't it? It's a kind of a scary story. I don't know about you. Maybe I think about myself right away and I go, boy, I hope I don't do something that God despises so badly that I will fall over dead. And that's a problem. A lot of people think that's kind of Old Testament style. That's weird that this is in the New Testament where we have, uh, where it contradicts this fluffy, warm, gracious characteristic of God. And to think so, unfortunately, is a shallow view of New Testament, New Testament, New Covenant Jesus. Remember, when you think about how scary this story is, the truth is, as humans, we don't know what fair is. And we shouldn't pretend to understand the intricacies of God's treatment of his own people. Okay? So if we have this criticism towards God, like, man, he's just striking people dead, couldn't Peter just have been like, dude, you shouldn't be lying, right? Don't lie and then allow Ananias an opportunity to repent, right? Isn't it extreme? Why, why the death penalty right away? It seems so extreme. It's a scary story, no doubt. But my faith in a good God means that this act is good. My faith in God, that he is this good character, that he has the best intentions for us, that he is gracious and loving and compels us to be gracious with him, that good God, whatever actions he does are good. And although this Ananias and Sapphira story seems scary and seems extremely judgmental and seems super ungracious, wrong. We need to put those thoughts away because we can't pretend to understand the intricacies of the way that God treats his people. My faith in a good God means that this story, even though Ananias and Sapphira didn't seem to have much chance, still means that this is good. Ananias and Sapphira's desire to look good, this comparison, this, this Facebook, Insta story that looks so amazing, comparing themselves to Barnabas, right, and wanting to imitate that and look good for less, that was their sin here. This is why they fell over. They wanted to keep for themselves, this desire to look good and to keep for themselves some of the money, is an attitude that apparently God stamps out right away. He stamps it out with extreme prejudice. Why? Do you think, I mean, we don't here think that God did this simply to feel good, right? Do you think God did this because he likes to feel powerful or that he likes to punish people, that he likes to use his powers to discriminate in such a punitive way? Is that how God operates? No, it isn't. So why did he do it so harshly? Just death right there. 
You know, I tell the story often uh, about the time that I was probably most disappointed in my son, Carter. Um, I think at this point, Carter uh, might have been five or six, and uh, Lucy had gotten a basket of Easter candy from preschool. She brought it home and shared with us some Easter candy. And she was so excited about how much that she got that she shared with us each. Gave some to Carter, gave some to Miriam, gave some to me. I was proud of that because I was like, wow, what kind of kid comes home with a bag of candy and shares it? Normally I see kids like hoarding it, hiding it, acting like Golem with their precious candy and sticking it in their closet so that nobody can find it. That's my normal experience with kids. But then Carter sneaks, finds her stash, and he gobbles up a bunch of it. And I was so upset because of the contrast between my two kids. Lucy, who was trying to share because she was so happy about her candy, and then Carter, who was just like candy and goes into selfish mode and goes and has it. And man, I, I spanked him. And I, I spanked, that was probably as harsh a spanking as he's ever received from me because I did not want that attitude growing and festering in him at all. I, did, I wanted him to know that it sucks to be selfish. I wanted him to associate this discipline with this attitude so that there, from then on, if he ever had selfish thoughts, that he would think about the spanking that he had received at a young age because I did not want selfishness as a part of his life. Now, I can't say that he has been more or less selfish. I don't know what's going on in his mind. But this is the same treatment that God had for the early church. No, we can't have selfishness in this. The community, the fellowship, the attitude of taking care of one another is so important that I'm not going to allow selfishness to be a part of this. Because if we allow it to fester and grow and be a part of it, then all of a sudden you, all of a sudden you're going to be a little more selfish. And then you're going to be more selfish. It has to be stamped out. Extreme prejudice. This is the lesson that God wanted to put on the people who had seen this story happen. That's why this story is still good. Would it have been better if I was just like, oh, hey, Carter, that's not, we don't do that, okay? Because what happens the next time that he sees a pile of candy that he wants? He's gonna act on those inward selfish feelings. I don't know if I'm reading into it, but if you look into Acts chapter five, verse five through six, and later into Acts chapter five, verses 10, take note, who took away the bodies? Who took away the bodies? The young men did. Now, again, I might be reading into it. I tend to do that. I try to put myself in, the, in place and like kind of see the story from a first perspective. So it makes sense that the young men would do it. They've got young backs, strong backs. They would take it, and then they would go and bury the bodies because they're physically able, perhaps. But I also think that this young generation saw that because later it's going to say that they were, they were all stricken with fear, those who had seen what had happened. Yes, this is a, a, a scary lesson. This is a lesson that really sticks and is really controversial and very scary. You know, these guys are thinking, well, I don't want to do something that make me drop dead also. This lesson actually strikes up a healthy fear of God by evoking kind of a scary memory. Does that make sense? Those young men who from then on, they were there to see it. Here we are reading about it. Who do you think in that camp ever again gave without thinking twice about the heart of offering? 
when they gave offering again in the future, they're probably thinking, man, I better not give selfishly or I better be careful about the heart that I give with because dude, do you remember Ananias? Remember that dude? He kept some for himself. Dude fell over dead. That's crazy. He just, just fell over and died. I thought that was Old Testament stuff. I didn't sign up for this. And they get really scared. And so they think about the heart of giving from then on. They had to think about it. When we give now, we ought to consider our heart as we give in this blue bowl. Even if Rich Korsmo comes up and gives twice in the blue bowl. We go, I don't know what he's thinking. He's tempting, you know, twice. And that was the lesson for them. That was the lesson. That was the heart. Now, I love how Peter specifically says to them, again, I think I got it up here. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events, and they were scared. Peter specifically says to Ananias later here, didn't it belong to you before it was sold, and after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? It was your money anyway. I literally believe, I believe, had Ananias said, nah, it's actually just 80% of what we made. Um, we made $10,000, but I'm, putting eight, I'm pushing 8,000 in. Is that cool? Peter might have been, yeah, that's cool. Thank you for telling the truth. That's very generous still. That's very generous. Thank you. Peter is saying to him, it was your money. <laughs> Why did you want to look good? Why, you wanted to be like, Bar- Why did you want to tempt the Holy Spirit? Why would you even think of doing such a thing? You've not lied just to human beings but to God also. It was, it was Ananias' money already. It wasn't a demand for them that they give everything. It wasn't, call, it wasn't a calling that they were uh, no longer in control of their own possessions. It wasn't like this cult, right, where they become a part and all of a sudden, all right, give me all of your worldly possessions, give me your social security number, give me your bank accounts, I want everything. That's not how it was. Remember when we read, they were offering from time to time because of their compulsion, because of their unity. Oh, I know that so-and-so is in a need. I better sell some things to make sure that this guy is taken care of. Nobody made them do it. It was, it was out of compulsion. Unfortunately, Ananias and Sapphira and so many of us, we have this desire to look good and in combination with the desire to keep for ourselves, to keep things for ourselves, to keep some money in my pocket, because I don't know what's going to happen in the future, this led to a very costly lesson. Humans hedge their bets. Humans have insurance. We like keeping a little for ourselves in case things go sideways. And so Ananias and Sapphira, they kept a portion for themselves, which literally meant that they weren't all in. It meant that they weren't all in. Now again, me, I'm not advocating that you hand your bank accounts over. But don't boast on false generosity. Don't tell people that you're all in if you're not. Don't pretend to be all in. Don't pretend to be this humongously generous person if you aren't. Don't do that. That's exactly what Ananias and Sapphira did. They wanted to look good, and they were trying to like, show people, oh, man, look how good I am, giving so much money. And frankly, they probably did give a lot of money, but because they wanted to be like everybody else, there is this costly lesson. This kind of fellowship that they belonged to, where they took care of one another's needs, 
I have to admit, it sounds amazing. And it sounds really awesome. It sounds like that's how life is supposed to be lived. But in truth, it's also really scary. It's, it's, it's really scary because it's really expensive. It's not a cheap way to live. To just kids Think about it. They're like, oh, I'm just going to sell a home. Really? Wow. That's a lot to be generous over. That kind of fellowship, the way that they took care of each other, it wasn't cheap. Humans, us still, back then, 2,000 years ago, up till now, 2019, humans will have to consistently push down this temptation to keep things to ourselves. We will be tempted to make sure that we ourselves are all right, that I'm taken care of, before I pause to make sure that others are all right. That's a human nature thing, and I have to tamp that down. Because the opposite, self-sacrifice, is a fundamental Christian characteristic. The one whom we follow, Jesus, was literally the embodiment of sacrifice. He is literally self-sacrifice personified, made into flesh. This definitive Christian characteristic will disqualify many. It will disqualify most from wanting to be a part of church or being a Christ follower. That's some heavy discipleship. That's some heavy fellowship. I don't know if I want to be a part of that, where you're compelled, you're made to sell. I don't want to sell my things to take care of a guy that I might not know that well. That's expensive. It's costly. Being a Christian will cost resource. It will cost time. It will cost energy. But at Life Fellowship, you are not receivers, you are not only receivers of ministry. It is an expectation of our leadership that you each here in these chairs and those who are within the atmosphere of Life Fellowship Church, you are not simply receivers of ministry. You are also agents, agents of ministry. That you go out and you take care of others you go out and you look at the people who are sitting next to you and the people who aren't here and you're looking around at their needs and making sure that their needs are met. Remember earlier we said knowledge, knowing the people beside you, knowing their stories, knowing the things that they are struggling through, that's what's going to compel you to give. Not me telling you, all right, Jaron, time to sell that motorcycle so you can give it to Jake. That, that's not how it's gonna work. But you knowing that Jake might be in deep need right, knowing that he's in deep need, that might come, Jaron might get the idea himself. With, with, with gracious compassion, he might go, man, I've got this motorcycle that sits in the garage that Alyssa doesn't want me driving around anyway. Maybe I ought to get rid of it and see if I can help take care of someone else. I think Jaron already got rid, there is no motorcycle. It's already gone. <laughs> but it is costly. Here, yes, you will be receivers of ministry. That's my role. I want to minister as best as I can to you. But here at Life Fellowship Church, and this is different for a lot of modern churches, a lot of people are on the receiving end of ministry. But here at Life Fellowship Church, there is a very important challenge from leadership to you each, that you are agents of ministry also. You are looking to one another just the same. How then are they going to pay such a costly thing? Not by willpower not by how loud I scream it from a pulpit. The truth is we've actually already read through this solution. In Acts chapter four, verse 33, we'll see how we pay into such a costly fellowship. 
With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. God's grace was so powerfully working in them that there were no needy persons among them. Here's your cause and effect. Cause, God's grace is so powerfully work in them that effect, there is no more needy people around them. They were spiritually compelled to participate in such an expensive fellowship. Now, I'm not asking you to fork over your time, resource, and energy. Today, I know that's what it sounds like, but that's not what I'm asking for. What I am asking you to do is to remain in tune with God's powerful grace, which results in miraculous unity, which results in that beautiful-looking fellowship that they talked about in Acts chapter 4. What I mean by that is I'm not asking for more money. I'm not asking for energy. I'm not asking for time. What I'm asking for you to do is to look inside and look at the God sightings, to, to count your sheep, to look at the blessings, to look at the ways that God has shown up for you. Because if you can count on those things and you see how good God has been to you, then forget comparison. Forget about that other person's awesome-looking Facebook feed. I'm looking at Jake's feed to see how I can help. I'm looking at Jaren to see how I can help. And then what's awesome about that community is then when I am in need, you're all looking at me just the same. God's grace was so powerfully worked in them because they took stock and understood of all the ways that God had taken care of them, especially through Jesus Christ, they were compelled to give up resource. They were compelled to take care of one another. So if you're gonna take away anything from today, it's this, remain in tune with God's powerful grace and that will result in miraculous unity. And again, the thing that bound them together was this hope in Jesus Christ. Those apostles, they kept on preaching. They kept on preaching about Jesus' resurrection and knowing that the ultimate thing that needed to be taken care of, which was eternal destination, salvation from eternal damnation, knowing that at the end of life they'd be reconciled to the creator, to the designer, to the one who loved them, that got them going the most. So remain in tune with God's blessings, the things that he's blessed you with in your life, but remain most in tune with the blessing of Jesus Christ. So I'm gonna offer a word of prayer. And I hope that you'd walk away and just think about um, remaining in tune with all those things that God has blessed you with. Heavenly Father, um, I pray that, you know, this story, this scary story of Ananias and Sapphira wouldn't simply be this thing that scares us, something that would frighten us away from wanting to increase closeness to you. Instead, Lord, I'd see it I hope that we each see it as this gracious maneuver of yours, that you see it so fit to teach us that there's no room for selfishness, there's no room for self-preservation, no room for looking at ourselves and taking care of ourselves, and said, Father, that we would be able to remain in tune with the resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ, and all of the gracious blessings that come from being a part of your body and being a, a, a follower of Jesus Christ, so that we would be compelled and that we would be full of hope as we look to the needs of the people around us. Tamp down our humanity 
rip it away from us and replace in us instead a heart of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for sending your son to be a hope for us. We praise his name together in this service, and I pray that as we end the service that we would go out still rejoicing and praising you for the greatness of your son. It's in his name I pray. Amen.